and welcome to Open Source Governance. I'm your host Pendar and we're going to listen to the third episode of this podcast. In this episode, we will talk about referendums, what it means, different examples, and we will also talk about different methods of voting and casting ballots. Before this episode starts, I want to give a big shout out to Sebeka Rotterdam, that is Centrum Bildende Kunst, which is a center for visual arts in Rotterdam, and they support art projects and research projects in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and stimulate them with fundings and grants. Project Open Source Governance received a research and development fund by Sebeka in 2017, and another fund for production and presentation in 2020. And this month they supported us with another contribution for this very podcast which enables us to bring in guests and carry on with this project. So in the previous episode, we talked about representative system and I explained what are the differences between a direct democracy and a representative democracy. Just to recap again, a representative democracy is when somebody is chosen by the public to take office and make decisions representing the constituencies of that region or uh, whoever they vote uh, for that person. In a direct democracy, however, the question is already composed and is uh, proposed to the public to make decisions about. This question can be a yes or no, so in favor or against passing a certain legislation or it could be a question with several answers to pick from. So the tool for enabling a representative democracy is called an election, and the tool for enabling a direct democracy is called a referendum. Of course, there are many more tools to discuss about, but uh, for now we're going to talk about these two. Alright, so what is a referendum? A referendum is a direct and universal vote that puts forward a question for the whole electorate to cast their ballots and voice their opinion about that question. An electorate district is basically um, a legislative district or an area that has its own local legislation. It is also known as legislative district, voting district, constituency, ward, division, and many other names. A referendum could be local or nationwide, and in both cases, the government, given the local or municipal government or the national government, they propose a new legislation or a change in an old legislation, and they propose this uh, for the public to decide about. The referendum may be obligatory or optional. Under the obligatory type, a statute or constitution requires that certain class of legislative action be referred to a popular vote for approval or rejection. For example, constitutional amendments proposed by legislators in most of the states of the United States are subject to obligatory referendum. 
Under the optional referendum, a popular vote on a law passed by the legislator is required whenever petitioned by a specific number of voters. By this means, actions of a legislator may be overruled. Obligatory or optional referendum should be distinguished from the voluntary referendum that legislators submit to the voters to decide an issue or test public opinion. So sometimes the government proposes a referendum just to test the opinion of the public or to seek advice from the public and to see how people feel about a certain question before actually going ahead and taking more serious action. This is called an advisory question and the citizens vote on a non-binding question. The difference is that the outcome of the advisory question does not result in new changes or rejections in the law or constitutional amendments. Advisory questions are most often placed on the ballot by the state's legislators or a local government. However, advisory questions can also be placed on the ballot by citizen initiative petitions in some states or localities. Advisory referendums are usually a very uh, sensitive topic and sometimes it's not clear whether a referendum is advisory or is it binding. The most controversial example is the referendum of UK for leaving the EU that is known as Brexit. There's a controversial example because it's very subjective how the politicians used the referendum in uh, their favor. Sometime after the referendum, it turned out that the, the referendum is actually advisory and uh, politicians in the Leave campaign actually used that referendum in their favor. But that's a subjective matter and I don't want to get uh, very much deep in that. Another controversial example is that uh, in Scotland, they have held several uh, independence uh, referendums and people have voted in favor of leaving the UK and joining the EU um, in different instances. For example, in 2014, uh, there was a majority for uh, in favor of leaving the UK. But because of details within the legislation system within the UK, um, it turned out that it, the results are advisory. So then it became non-binding. Something else to mention here is that this type of direct democracy has two different types. There is referendum and there is initiative. In a referendum, a legislation is up for change, so for editing an existing legislation. But for the initiative type, the proposal is to actually add a new legislation to the law of that uh, country or that district. Okay, now that we have discussed what referendum is and what does it stand for and different types of referendum, I want to talk about different types of voting and different systems that are used around the world. These are the systems that are being used and most popular around the world 
and I will give you a few examples. But before I start, I have shared a link in the description of this episode where you can learn more in depth uh, how these systems work with animations and really clear explanations. Another thing I wanted to mention is that uh, these types of voting are used both in elections for selecting representatives and in referendums. So we could be talking about selecting one out of the two options or one out of the many options. The first and the most simple one is called plurality voting. It is also referred to as first past the post. In this system, the concept is quite simple. There are several options to choose from and the one with the most votes will win. This is the voting system that we can even use in our daily lives for any decisions basically. And we're all familiar with it. In the situation of election for a representative system, you can imagine having several parties and one of them gets the vote to be elected and have more seats or electing a president in a country or in a case of referendum with yes or no, well, one of the two would get the most votes, so it's very simple. The second voting system is called instant runoff voting. In instant runoff voting, there are several choices and each voter will cast their ballot based on their preferences instead of having to choose only their one top choice. The voter can select uh, from 1 to 5 or 6 or 10 or how many options there are and they will put down their preferences based on what they prefer to be the first choice. For example, if there are 5 people, there are 5 blank spaces to be filled and you write down the name of the first person that you prefer the most and then the second one that you prefer the most and third and fourth and fifth one. And the way that instant runoff voting system is analyzed is first they look at the number one preference of uh, that who received the most votes and the second and the third and the fourth. Then the fifth will be eliminated because it's the least one. Then they will take the results from the least favorable one and its votes will be allocated to those votes second choice. So they will look at the second choice of these eliminated votes and they will add these votes to those second choices. Here we have these four options moving up or remaining the same because these votes from the eliminated one will be added to them. And they will do it again with the fourth one. So they take these votes and put it on the, these three remaining ones. And they will do it again with the third one and the second one. By eliminating these votes and adding them to their favorable choices, you will find the first one that has the most favorable votes. Another voting system is called multiple round system. It is also referred to as two round system, second ballot, runoff voting or ballotage. It is a voting method uh, very similar to the first one, which was the plurality voting where there are several candidates or choices to be chosen from and there are two rounds. In the first round, the two choices with the most received votes will be facing each other in the second round. So after the first round, other options are eliminated and there remains only two options to choose from. This happens because none of them has received, for example, 50% of the whole votes that are casted. For example, if there is 1 million people voting, 
in case in the first round none of the candidates have received more than 500,000 votes, they will go to the second round of voting. If a candidate or an option from the referendum has received more than 50%, it doesn't require a second round. Then we have the Condorcet method. Condorcet method is an election method that elects the candidate who wins a majority of the votes in every head-to-head -head election against each of the other candidates. So the candidate or the option in referendum is preferred by more voters than any others. The option that beats all the winners is formally called as the Condorcet winner. So what this means is that a candidate or an option in the referendum is put against another candidate to be chosen from by the whole population that legally can vote. So, for example, if we have A, B, C, D, A is running against B, against C, and D. And it's the same for everybody. B is running against A, and C, and D. And as a person who's voting, you get to choose your most favorable one in all of these election rounds. And the one that wins most of these challenges is announced the winner. Another voting system I like to refer to is called score voting. It is also referred to as range voting. It's an electoral system for a single seat election in which voters give each candidate a score. The score are added or averaged and the candidate with the highest total is elected. So imagine you have three candidates or options and then you get to score them from zero to 10. And this shows your preference and also the level of your preference. And just for the record, I will also explain one of the, my least favorite election systems that is called Electoral College that is being practiced in the United States. I will try to make it simple. So United States is consisting of 50 different states. These states have different populations. Depending on the population, they have electorals. These are the number of people who are representing these states when it comes to Electoral College. For example, a state with fewer population might have only five electoral colleges, and another state like Texas, which has 38 electoral votes, has more population. So when the election happens, there is the same election in each of these 50 states. The end result of that election in each of these states is independent, and then they are combined together. How do they do that? If you have candidate A and B, and the candidate B wins in Texas, the Electoral College will receive 38 electoral votes for candidate B in total. In the other state that has only five electoral votes, the candidate A wins, and then the total of the votes for candidate A is then five. So you can have the win of like 12 states for candidate A, but in less populated states, and they still don't match the number of one winning state for candidate B. For example, in California, there are 55 electoral votes. That is the combination of like, I don't know, 20 states that have less electoral votes. 
And then what happens is that each of these candidates who pass the number 270, they will win the election. This also means that if the total number of the people from the whole country that have voted in favor of the candidate who's losing is more than the person who's winning, that can also happen. For example, in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. That means more people have voted for her. But Donald Trump won the Electoral College. That means he became the president. Yeah, that's something that can happen in Electoral College, which is quite funny. these election systems fair? That's a million dollar question we want to answer with this project. You have to realize these are the most practiced systems for voting around the world that have been in place for ages. Let's do a very short recap. In the plurality voting or first past the post, the one with the most votes wins. But what does it mean for people who have voted for the other candidates or for the other options? This means if you have four options to choose from, people who have voted for all the other three are losing and they are not being represented. And the option that is selected is not their favorable choice. In the instant runoff system, the situation could easily be occurred where the option that is selected is not at the top of the most favorable uh, options from everybody else. An option could race to the top only because the way that people have put their preferences in the A, B, C, D, different choices that they have. And then we have something that's called tactical voting. What tactical voting means is basically you lying about your preferences. For example, in the multiple round system, you know that your choice will not be elected because they are not uh, the most popular one or there is not enough people voting for that. So imagine there is a really clear candidate that everybody knows that they are going to get the vote and there is a second one and there is a third choice and then there is a fourth choice. You like the fourth choice. So when you are going to vote you will not go vote for the fourth choice but to eliminate the third choice you will vote for the second choice. So by tactically voting another candidate, other than the one that you sincerely prefer, you're basically preventing a situation from occurring that you dislike. For example, there's a far-right candidate who wants to run for presidency. There is a moderate one who is less popular, but is kind of famous. And there's a third candidate who is more social and open and, let's say, in line with your point of view. But this candidate is a bit controversial and you know that they will not win. But you don't want a far-right person to win either. So when you're voting, you will vote for the moderate one to increase the chances of that person winning the seat. This actually can happen in most of these voting systems. 
But are these election systems good and fair if they incentivize or enable lying? Regardless of the issues that these voting systems have in bringing to the surface the most preferred option or to ignore the favored options from the other groups, by ignoring the most favorable choices from different groups or different individuals, technically speaking, any voting system that is there to choose an option out of many will eventually and mathematically lead to sacrificing the choices of some other groups that are called the minorities. You can't do anything about it. You have to choose one out of several options. So that is inevitable. But I'm especially talking about when you are making decisions with everybody and you are talking about a seat that is there to be not altered for several years in the office, for example. A president stays there for four years. Members in the parliament, they serve for several years. National referendums, there are large questions and they are there to alter the constitution usually or to make a big decision that there is no turning back from. So when we are talking about democracy, yes, this all seems very democratic. You are given an option to choose from. Uh, but how do you exactly formulate those questions is my curiosity. And how do you make sure that people do not misuse their powers in their seats? And how do you check on individuals carrying out their responsibilities when they are there in their seat for such a long time? There's a notion called the tyranny of the majority. When the will of a majority population group excessively prevails in a system of government, it results in the potential for tyranny over minority groups. Tyranny of the majority is also called tyranny of the masses. And it is a situation that can result from a system of majority rule, where the majority group places its own interests above the interests of a minority group without consideration for the welfare or rights of the minority. In a direct democracy, for example, this form of oppression could involve the majority using the democratic process to shape public policies solely in their own interests, excluding the minority group from the distribution of the benefits. And shined Greek politician thinkers realized the potential for a tyranny of the majority to occur in the government. The Greeks called this type of government an oklocracy, defined as government by mob rule. And when you think of a modern situation, you can easily think about the parties that are far beyond reach and are too powerful to be even challenged. For example, the United States, Democrats and Republicans. The choice is always among one of these two because they have become too big that they are not to be challenged by any other party. And when they do propose a candidate to choose from, the competition is always very close to call. For example, in the election of 2016 between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump won the electoral college votes. 
And you can think of other examples. For example, again with Brexit, 51.9% over 48.1%. And when you have these percentages that you look at and you see that this is a big number of the population, almost 49%. That's very close to half of the whole population who did not agree to leave the EU, yet they are forced to do so. And that's a referendum. In the case of Donald Trump, it was an election. So you have both examples here. But what should these people do who are in the minority? Should they just take it? Should they face the results from this outcome to affect their lives in many, many different ways? And what about the other minorities who were not even in the race? For example, in the case of an election, what if there was a party that was magically better than the Republicans and the Democrats? And what if they could form the question in a way that was a third option or a fourth option for the Brexit? Why did it have to be so black and white? So when we are speaking about the tyranny of the majority, we are talking about two layers. We are talking about frustrations of people. We are talking about the consequences that people have to face. We are talking about mistakes and the results and results that could change the whole world, basically. In both cases, the election of Donald Trump and Brexit, the geopolitical image of the world changed. So here we have other communities and other countries who are facing the results of election in other countries who have more power. The President of United States can have a very strong voice in the global community and they can make decisions, they can start wars, they can move embassies, they can tweet and change the whole market going up and down. Departure of United Kingdom changed the whole image and economy of the European Union, how the borders are handled, how people are moving, you know. So it's not only affecting the people from that community. So we have the minority and we have other people who are standing outside looking in. But coming back to referendums, I want to talk about four main questions. In our project Open Source Governance, one of our biggest focuses is on how to form a question in a fair and inclusive way. Referendums are usually big questions, and the results are usually really confronting each other. Sometimes it's really necessary to have that big question. But because of the nature of our election systems and how we are handling our everyday business in forming these questions, the politicians tend to form these questions in increasingly larger forms. These questions are becoming more and more vague to the people to choose from because they are complicated, they are heavily worded, and the result is not really that clearly explained, especially if it's campaigned and voiced through a populistic point of view where the politicians try to lure the population towards where they want them to follow, by any means necessary. And when we are talking about the minorities, thinking about these big questions, 
you can imagine that there is a big chance that the minority groups are being excluded from the benefits of these decisions. Here I'm not talking about the 49%. Here I'm talking about the ethnic minorities, the localities or provinces that are far from the center, women, religious minorities, LGBTQ community, people with lower income, people with disabilities, and generally groups that are not being represented very well or are too small to be recognized. When the governing body is seeking advice or looking for permission from the population to take action on a certain matter, they pose referendums. But did they formulate these questions in a way that it includes the benefit of everybody? In open source governance, what we are trying to do is focus on these questions and try to rethink the language of these questions. Try to find a way that these questions are informed well enough to the people. And the size of the question, that is one important element. Is the size of this question too large? Could it be composed in more smaller questions? Could it be several questions or several referendums that would serve the different interests and not to channel it into two giant answers? Even when we are talking about multiple choices, this can happen. Wouldn't it be better if people had the power to raise these questions that we call referendum in smaller local places to enable them to have a tool so that they could solve their own questions? We are living in a system where the government system, the corporate system, the education system, they think they are informed and experienced enough to know what's best for their population and their members. They think they know what the question is, and they pose these questions without considering many things that are happening on the ground. A well-educated and wealthy politician who studied in the best university of that country, how would they know that what is the struggle of a single mother who's earning less than the average uh, income? What do they really care about? Is it only the career? Or is it really the people? It's a bit naive to think that all people who are in the decision-making positions, they know what's it about and what they are really actually making decision for. How much chance do people really have to voice their opinion? Sure, there are city hall meetings, there are municipality gatherings, there are, there are phone numbers, there are petition websites. There's a lot of tools out there. But they are mostly advisory. Why shouldn't everybody have the equal chance to pose a question for their community? There are several tools and methods for creating a communal question, using the wisdom of the crowd, different techniques in debating, finding shared values, common values, that we can use in forming questions. And nowadays with the internet, it's very simple to do it. But we are just sticking to these old methods. What we are trying to do in open source governance is try to formulate these methods into a practical way that enables this. We have held several decision-making workshops in which we have formed a question and found the answer for that. Questions that include everybody's concerns. And then we found the different groups of concerns that are less important but still possible nominations to have another decision about. 
So when I'm talking about breaking down the big question, I'm talking about these steps. In the later episodes, I will explain what I mean with collective decision-making and with breaking down the questions. Also, how to formulate a question that is born from the community itself. But first, I will give you more elaborate examples on the existing methods that are being implemented around the world. Perhaps an example about how the Netherlands is governed and uh, we will dig a bit more deeper into the minority rights and what tools are existing out there for minorities to speak their minds out. Speaking about minority rights, these days you can see the struggle of Palestinian people and how they as minority have no rights to defend themselves, to be heard, to vote, to live, to exist, or move, or drink water, basically the most basic uh, rights of a human being. Apartheid's happening to Palestinian people, and ethnic cleansing, which is what the Israeli government is doing. There once was a land called Palestine where Christians, Muslims and Jews lived fine in the 1800s. It was ruled by the Ottoman Empire. Meanwhile, a bearded guy founded Zionists for Jews to aspire. A land that becomes their home and safe only for their kind. Then there was World War One that ended when the Allies won and England was like, hey, this beautiful land is totally mine. Still the name was Palestine, even though it was colonized, and a promise for a Zionist state was made by a man that had no right. Then more and more Jews arrived seeking refuge, and that's alright until their plan to steal the land was no longer to hide. The year was 1948 when Israel bullied its way into a state. Thousands of Palestinians fled their homes to survive. No right for return, no right for a home, no right to fight for the land that they owned. Israel expanded more and more into an apartheid. Where is your human? Humanity, where is your respect for dignity? Call it conflict, that's insanity. It's time to change your mind. One day Palestine will be free, so be on the right side of history. You're not anti-Semitic if you stand against war crimes. Don't be brainwashed by the news. Now you can see for yourself the truth. Learn about the story, story of Palestine. I want to ask you to please take a moment and educate yourself if you don't already know what people in Palestine are going through. It's very important to be knowledgeable about this because the voice is being silenced and the major media is not really giving you the right information. So that is something to consider. Before I forget, this month an episode was released by the podcast from Sebeka Rotterdam that is called The Gedroomdestad, which roughly translates to The Dreamed City. Janine van Perkel interviewed me about my artistic practice and this project. If you want to learn more about the project and about my artistic practice, I encourage you to listen to that episode. I will leave the link to that episode in the description of this episode that you're listening to now.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode and thank you for stepping on this road together with me in learning about collective decision making and making coexistence more pleasant for everybody. And of course, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our channel. We are on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter with at sign Project OSG. If you feel like you've learned something and would like to contribute to our cause, you can easily do it through our website uh, via our donate link. Our website is opensourcegovernance.com. Also, I'm receiving really kind messages from people who want to collaborate and be part of a discussion and actually engage with the project in some way. We had held several public sessions in the years before, but we had to stop it because of the safety of everybody. And that's why we have the podcast now. But soon there might be a chance for making public sessions online, so via Zoom or another tool. And when the regulations are a bit more softened, perhaps we could have an outdoor session in Rotterdam. But I will try to look into having an online session so if you feel interested, let me know and I will evaluate and plan a session ahead. Thank you again and until next time. Bye.